0: You know, I was thinking about the marathon, especially in light of um, Scripture verses that I want to be considering here in a moment. But, you know, when the marathon moves in, I mean, it takes over, right? I have to change. I have to change my route to the church. You know, my my eight-minute commute, you know, soars to like 13 minutes. And it's just, I just have to. I have to medicate because of it. And, uh, you know, there's road signs that appear everywhere. There are, uh, you know, painted arrows on the street, tables, signs along the route. They're, 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 they're spray painting the streets with arrows and first aid stations, water stations. Uh, there are meetings with officials. Uh, there are acquiring of permits, vendors. I'm sure there's some sort of accounting system To factor in the money that flows into, and expenses, and receipts, and expenses, and uh, I mean, it's a machine, right? It's a machine. Hotels, restaurants, parking, uh, and, and, and then leading up to the marathon, you know the marathon's coming, don't you? Uh, in like February or January or whatever when folks are out running and uh, when there's just a glimmer of halfway warmth in the dead of winter, folks are out and they're getting ready. People are organizing their lives around the marathon. They're organizing their schedules and they're organizing their little gatherings with people with the marathon. And I would be willing to bet that there is an instruction manual about how to do a marathon, uh, a marathon playbook, with, with highly detailed directions about the entire enterprise. Someone had to think that through, right? And I'm, I'm, they, they they didn't make it up on the fly. They didn't say last weekend, hey, let's have a race this weekend, okay? Uh, here's some spray paint. Go make something up. I don't think they did that. I mean, I, I, and I would imagine that they had to consult an outside authority on a sort of an urban marathon authority on how to do it well. And then they had to write it down, and then they had to preserve instructions and the layout for future generations so that it will continue. That makes sense, right? The marathon, I mean, it's big. It just takes over. It's a production. It requires multiple layers of help, and it's not just for the runners, though, is it? It's for the entire community. It brings our cities together. People who have never met meet right now. Right now, someone is texting someone else saying, wow, it was great to meet you at the marathon. And and a year from now, two years from now, there's going to be a wedding. Right? Right? I mean, or, or, or a job offer, networking, marriages, families, fun, celebration, a goal, a finish line. Then there's a focal point, right? There's a focal point to which all of the runners go to where all of the efforts of all of the playbook and all the planning it, it culminates in just one grand finale. and Families and friends show up, and it's, it's just beautiful when the marathon moves in. Let me tell you what happens when God moves in. Want to go there? Yeah, take your Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter 25. It's on page 65 of your church Bibles. If you don't have a copy of God's Word to call your own, please take it and uh, receive it as a gift. I, I've had, uh, almost every week I have folks ask is it okay if I take Yes, this is a gift. We want, you to, we want everybody to have a copy of God's Word. And I have two verses in our Scripture today. Exodus 25, 8, and 9 The Lord is speaking to Moses concerning Israel, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all its furniture, so you shall make it. This is God's word. Now, we've been on a marathon through the book of Exodus. I know that. And you are, you are wonderful learners and listeners. What a, it really is a privilege uh, to have teaching time and worship time together here. Um, the book of Exodus, if we will get the narrative, if we will get the storyline of the book of Exodus, it will enable us to understand, really, and unlock so much more of Scripture because Exodus, the exodus of Israel from Egypt was the most important event in the lives of God's people concerning the Hebrew Scriptures. And that event and its storyline and its meaning and its significance is echoed over and over and over and over and over again throughout Scripture. When you look at the Psalms and you read about the parting of the sea, and you think about the plagues upon Pharaoh, and you, Jesus himself spoke of his exodus through the cross. Once you understand the storyline of Exodus, the entire Bible really becomes so much easier to understand. We've learned that the book of Exodus is really about God, God the deliverer, God, the lawmaker, and God, the architect, Exodus 1 through 19, God, the deliverer. Exodus begins with Israel in slavery. God calls Moses after 10 plagues against Pharaoh and a supernatural rescue through the Red Sea. God led Israel to Sinai where he introduced himself. I am a holy God of love and grace. And then he told Israel who they were. So God says, here's who I am. And then he says, here's who you are. In that order. You are my treasured possession. You are a kingdom of priests. You are a holy nation. And your mission is to mirror Yahweh. Your mission is to to mirror God to the nations. And God the deliverer culminates with these words, Exodus 15, 13. In your steadfast love, you have led the people you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode, Exodus 15, 13. God the deliverer. Most recently, we have considered God the lawgiver, and that's Exodus 20 to 24. God gives Israel the gift, the gift of his word. And we studied the Ten Commandments. And we said that the Ten Commandments don't appear in Exodus chapter one, do they? As if God were establishing his expectations as a condition for their release. No, 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 that's not how it works. Instead, God releases his people, rescues them, delivers them, and and then he says, now here's how I would like rescued people to live. And the Ten Commandments are spelled L-O-V-E, love. First half of the commandments are about loving God, and then the second half are about loving one another. In other words... Life is not about me. Life is about loving God and loving others. Isn't that what Jesus said? That's Exodus 20. Exodus 21 through 24 are just are just case law or case scenarios that apply the Ten Commandments. God the lawgiver culminates in Exodus 24-7. Moses took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. Now that's a benediction we should consider when we read God's word, don't you think? (laughs) All the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. God, the lawgiver. God, the deliverer. God, the lawgiver. And now we come to the finale. God, the architect. And that's these verses that we read here. Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle. Of all its furniture, you shall make it. So from Exodus chapters. 25 to 40, God gives Israel a verbal blueprint of the tabernacle, a tent. That's, that's what the word tabernacle means, tent. And so think about this. More than a third of Exodus deals with the tabernacle, and that's by design. And let me just get to a picture here. This is a, actually a, a scale a reproduction uh, in Israel. And that's a model of the tabernacle. And let me just give you a little bit of perspective here. So it wasn't really that big. There's the perimeter. You can see the yellow is, is, the, is the perimeter. And then that, the black portion there is the actual tent itself. So it, it really wasn't that large. It was, it was simple. Uh, the perimeter was roughly 75 feet by 150 feet, quarter of the size of an American football field, roughly. Uh, very simple design. There are only seven pieces of furniture. Only seven pieces of furniture. So the significance of the tabernacle is that when God moves in, worship matters. Worship happens. Worship is the most natural response of a people who have been freed from a past that they could not get out of on their own. And then those freed people have been gifted with God's word, God's will, God's mind. worship matters. So today I want us to consider three truths about worship. Worship is a response to something. Worship is ruined by something. And then worship is more than something. Response to, ruined by, more than. Let's get to work. First, Worship is worship is a is worship is our response to the presence of God. That's the phrase that I may dwell in their midst. God, think about this church. This, let I hope your heart smiles with this. God wants to be in our midst. God wants to be with us. God wants to be close to us. God wants to live in our neighborhood. God comes close. That's what's what's going on here with the the tabernacle. These verses answer two key questions. Who is God and who am I? Who is God? God is the great king who has rescued his people from a pseudo-king and carried them to safety, and he desires Our company. And why would he do that? Oh, for the same reason that our parents that you saw on that screen feel about their children. God, they just love, they just they've just got crazy love for their kids. God's got crazy love for you. Here's a picture. If God had a refrigerator, your picture would be on it. Huh? Bless you. But it's true. And you know why? Because that's what love does. That's what love is. And that leads us to the second key question. Who am I? Who am I? I am someone God loves. That's who I am. I am someone with whom God wants to live. God God does not rescue us, teach us, gift us with his word, and then say, get out of here and leave me alone now. You check in every Sunday for 75 minutes. But beyond that, don't bug me. That's not God. That's not this God. God wants our company. Uh, This week I came across a wonderful question. It's a probing question. What is the deepest truth about who you are? The deepest truth about who you are. See, it's a question about identity, isn't it? Identity is about who you believe you are, People and people look to their successes and failures and abilities and disabilities and age and appearance and affluence and determining identity. But the tabernacle answers that question. The deepest truth about who, who I am, I am someone with whom God wants to live. God wants closeness with me, and, and that truth needs to Define our identity above all. How he sees us and what he says about us needs to inform our foundational sense of personhood. Again, why would he do this? In your unfailing love, he has already said. And our response to that is, ah, oh, worship. God loves us despite our deepest failures. And that truth frees us from striving for self-sufficiency based on personal effort. We're free from pretending. We're free from trying to manufacture an image. And and people who are freed from trying to manufacture an image of themselves can use their freedom to focus on others. Um, I shared with the parents yesterday afternoon uh, the title of a a title of a talk. Once you hear the title, the title is the talk. It's this. Children are horribly needy creatures and other reasons why Jesus loves you. There it is. I, I am someone who, with whom God wants to live. And so, so worship is my response to the God who desires my company. Worship is my reply, our reply to God's initiating love. We we love because He first loved us. I think some of us think that if we just worshiped harder, whatever that means, then God would show up. Church family, He's already here, He's here. The the, the, the tabernacle was built so that Israel would have a true understanding about how the Lord feels about his people. Let me make that very clear with this encouraging verse from Zephaniah 3.17. Here it is. The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Hmm. Do you ever doubt this? Do you ever wonder if this is really true? That God actually enjoys us? That he actually sings over us? please believe, please believe Zephaniah. Please believe God's love for, for us, for you. Please, and please trust that love. And please live like you believe that God wants to be with you. For in doing so we'll put into play the second truth about worship. So 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 worship in worship we we see that God wants to be with us. But in worship we we affirm reality. Affirm reality. Ultimate reality. Capital R reality. So go back to your text here for a minute. In Exodus chapter 25 to 40, I said that's how it's divided that's how this section on the tabernacle looks but within 25 to 40 go to exodus 25 to 31 and in exodus 25 to 31 are the actual instructions themselves okay so in other words it's like it's a verbal blueprint a verbal blueprint just written instructions that's exodus 25 to 31 And as you look at this tabernacle here, as you look at the floor plan, the tabernacle is laid out in a series of buffer zones. And so I'm going to show you a couple of different renditions of how Israel gathered around the tabernacle. That's one rendition. And then here's another rendition. And then I've got just one more. That that was a a nighttime rendition. But it's a series of buffer zones. And what I mean is, is that at the very center, the most sacred space in the tabernacle was a space called the Holy of Holies. What was the Holy of Holies? Here it is. Here it is. It's a 15-foot by 15-foot by 15-foot cube with a box in it called the Box of the Covenant or the Ark of the Covenant. That was it. But only the high priest could enter that sacred space and that once a year. And then going out it is a place called the Holy Place. That's another buffer zone. That's for the priests. And then there's the courtyard there that you see. And then the tribe of the Levites which were the priests of Israel, they would surround that compound. And then Israel, so you see what's going on? There's just a series of concentric circles. High priests, priests, Levites, Israel, and then the nations. Okay. Uh, I want to go back to this. Uh, let's go back one slide because I want to, let's do one more. That's fine, this would be good. Church family, this is what God wanted for Israel. When Israel later clamored for a king so that they could look like the other nations, it just, God said, they're rejecting me. But this is what God wants, where where we focus our lives, where he's the center of our lives. He's the center of our lives where our awe and our worship and our attention and our goals and our priorities could be focused on Him. And and someone might say, well, that just sounds egocentric of God to be the center of the universe. Well, okay, let's talk about that for just a minute. First of all, He made the universe, okay? And second of all, so to receive all this worship and praise and awe and attention, what if He actually deserves it, right? Right? So, I mean, you get paid twice a month, right? You endorse your check. Well, that's that's arrogant of you to endorse your check. No, 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 I earned it. Well, wait, wait a minute. What if they actually, see you see what I'm saying? God deserves this. God, God has earned this. For what he's done for us, he's just, we can't pay him back. We just, Give our lives with an awesome, worshipful sense of thanksgiving and gratitude. That's what God wants. And so this tent, this holy tent, was really to be a pattern for their lives that that God's people might orbit around him. And so that's what the instructions were for, all right? Now then, let's go back to the outline, Mark. One more. There we go. At the bottom, chapters 35 to 40, is the actual construction of the tabernacle. So God tells the people in 35 to 31 the instructions. Then in 35 to 40, they do it. They they obey Him, and they construct the tabernacle. Okay. Smack-dab in the middle between the two. By design is a national debacle called the great sin. And it's the golden calf debacle. So in chapters 32 to 34, while Moses is with God on Sinai writing down the instructions, Israel's going, where did he go? Where did he go again? When's he coming back? He's gone for good. And and the nation fell into an idolatrous or an idolatrous orgy and they pulled their resources and they fashioned a golden calf. Can you imagine a spouse committing adultery on their honeymoon? Well, that's this, think about it. The 10 plagues proved that Egypt's gods were not just powerful or powerless, they were non-existent. They're not real, only the God of Israel is real. And, and Israel repents and gets on to construction. And at the conclusion of Exodus 40, God moves, moves in. But I'm telling you, right in the middle of ultimate reality, Israel is tempted to pursue pseudo-reality. So, so we worship to affirm what is really real. We worship to affirm reality, capital R reality, capital T truth. So worship is more than a 75-minute religious service. Worship is an expression of worldview. And smack dab in the middle of ultimate reality, these verses put us on notice that there are other entities who want you to orbit around them. Pseudo-gods and idols who compete for your affection. Right in the middle of instruction and construction is idolatry, which means we are called to have to choose. There is no neutrality. Not to choose ultimate reality is to default to pseudo-reality. G.K. Chesterton, who was really a literary mentor to C.S. Lewis in the last century, said this, When we cease to worship God, we do not worship nothing, we worship anything. So don't just call the tabernacle a tent. It's not just expensive canvas for bivouac. It's a reminder of what's really real, of who is really real. This Tuesday morning, we will pray over your prayer requests that you mentioned by name. At every one of our elders' meetings, we have two-hour elders' meetings, first hours in prayer, prayer and devotions for your prayer requests. We found that when we pray half of our meeting, the meetings go quicker. Think about that. Here were last week's request topics. Children, health, cancer, inoperable cancer, marriages, divorce, job search, job opportunity, Gratitude for finding a job, recovery, gratitude for graduation, daily sobriety, just gratitude to God, okay? Those are were, those were just the, the, the topics, some of the topics. The very act that we bring our prayer requests and praises before Almighty God reveals that we want to bring our reality beneath, into, and under the care of God's reality, because the big temptation is to believe that my reality, my reality is ultimate reality. No, if I believe that, then I I have a puny little kingdom of one. And what the tabernacle is telling us is that our God is ultimate. And our weekly act of worship is a declaration of whose reality reigns. And listen to me, church family, (laughs) hear me, Our world needs people whose lives look like they have figured out real reality. Dallas Willard is an author and a Christian philosopher. He passed away years ago. He wrote these insightful words. He said, we live in a culture that has cultivated the idea that the skeptical person is always smarter than the one who believes. You can can almost be as stupid as cabbage as long as you doubt And then he says this. Our world can no longer be left to mere diplomats, politicians, and business leaders. They've done the best they could, no doubt. (laughs) But this is an age for spiritual heroes. He's talking about us. A time for men and women to be heroic in their faith and in spiritual character and power. The greatest danger to our church today is that of pitching our message too low. We need ambassadors for King Christ. Declaring that when Christ's reality appears, when he comes to live in the neighborhood, the neighborhood changes. We change. Our reality gets absorbed in his reality. And that's always for the better. You know, sometimes we think that with God in the hood, we're just going to have a little bit more spruced up home. But actually, God is doing a complete rehab project because he's going to be living with us. His standards are higher than ours. And when he moves in, his version of reality takes over, and it's truer, and it's deeper, and it's better. God is bigger than the marathon. I mean, he's not just planning on tying up the streets for about 10 hours. He wants to live with us forever. I mean, if, if our community is changed by 9 or 10 hours, think how much more with God. Isn't that a beautiful thought? So worship is more. That's why idolatry ruins worship because it, it, it desecrates ultimate reality. I guess the question here before we get to the third part is this. Who are you orbiting? Or what are you orbiting? Is it passing or is it ultimate? Well, Truth number three is this, worship is more than an event. Worship is life. That's what we're getting at, right? Worship is more than Sundays at 9 and 1045. Worship is surrendering all that I am to all that God is. Worship acknowledges that God is ever-present and always close and ultimately real. Worship comes from a heart that desires God we desire the dwelling of the risen Christ. We desire his presence. We desire him. Well, What would that look like? Think about this. Dream with me for a moment. What would it look like if we lived every moment of every day, in every place, in every circumstance, fully confident and assured that God is our dwelling and that he wants to live with us and that his concerns are greater than ours, that when he shows up, I mean, he has things I and mean, we have things we thought were important but his are more important and, and our Whatever is ours is swallowed up in his. I mean, what would our response to that be? A worshipful life. One that goes out from this gathering, knowing that God is just as much with us when we are apart from one another as he is when we are gathered with each other. And then we begin looking. We begin looking for God's presence. So I had a wonderful experience a few weeks ago at the Beckman Institute at the thir- at their 30th anniversary celebration, and uh, so it was an interdisciplinary symphony of science, arts, music, drama came together in a uh, uh, spectacular presentation. Quantum rhapsodies is what it was called. Quantum physics. I, I mean, wow! Property. I learned properties of light light's a wave, light's a particle. I don't understand that, but it sounds smart to say that and I mean it was just glorious and 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 so as I was as I was experiencing the science and the and the music, there was a string uh, stringed instruments and and the narration, it was uh, art and science were just kind of dancing together. I thought about the psalms, the heavens declare the glory of God. One musical artist said this, I want my music to express love for every note. Go to an athletic event, and you'll experience poetry in motion. When you see a professional athlete make their sport look easy, you know it's not. Look at an accountant's balanced books. Oh, that's the order of God. And then there are the trades. Trades. Uh, Exodus chapter 36 speaks of Bezalel and uh, Aholiab and every craftsman in whom the Lord has put skill and intelligence to know how to do any work in terms of the construction. That's Exodus 36.1. Oh, my. To see great architecture. What made the Notre Dame fire so heartbreaking? Because it's so beautiful. So Beautiful. Orthodox Christianity taught that the purpose of art is not self-expression, but the glory of God. Hmm. So worship's more than a 75-minute session. It's giving all that I am to all that God is. Uh, G.K. Chesterton. You say grace before meals, good. Good. I say grace before the concert and the opera. I say grace before the play and the pantomime. I say grace before I open a book. Grace before sketching, painting, swimming, fencing, boxing, walking, playing, dancing, and grace before I dip the pen in the ink. There it is. Worship is giving all that I am to all that God is. And when we do that Monday through Saturday, wow, and then we bring all of that in here, that's what I call a party and that's worship, lives shared together in celebration. That's what this tabernacle's about, church family, okay? And that tabernacle makes us think of the true tabernacle who put on flesh. John 1, 14, look at that verse here. And the Word became flesh and, and this is the Word, Tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory. The glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus came near so that we might respond in worship. Jesus came to show us capital R, ultimate reality. And Jesus came so that we could be with him, 24-7. And now through his death, burial, and resurrection, and His ascension, and the sending of His Holy Spirit. Do you know now in these last days, we are the tabernacle for the world to see that God is ultimately real. God wants to be with the world through His Spirit-filled church. Do you know that? And so whereas the nations gathered and were drawn to the tabernacle, in Christ, His church comprises the nations and are scattered everywhere to communicate the closeness of God in Christ. Ephesians 2.22, In Christ, you also are being built together into a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. God comes Close. Worship matters. Amen? Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you so much. Would you please help us? We're going to be going into the week. Some of us know what our schedule is going to look like. Some of us will be blindsided by other realities. And they are realities, Lord, but they're not ultimate realities. Remind us, Lord, of who you are. And remind us of who we are so that we may respond in awe. Thank you. And the church said, amen.